What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last time we were together, Moses came down from Mount Sinai to confront the Israelites and their horrible sin of idolatry as they made that golden calf and they worshipped it and they did all sorts of other sinful things with it. And so we saw the confrontation that Moses brings and just sharing with them the sin that they committed. We saw the Israelites' response to their sin and ultimately God's judgment upon them for their sin. But, you know, that brings up the question, well, well, what's next? You know, what's next for someone who, you know, has had their sin revealed to them and, you know, and now, you know, they've kind of had some responses, some that aren't very good. You know, well, well, what's next? And what's next for the person like Moses who has come and, you know, addressed that sin, who's, you know, confronted that person in their sin? You know, what's the next step that, that should transpire and happen after this takes place? Because it doesn't just end there. It doesn't just, you know, you reveal it and then they kind of have their response, whatever it may be, and you guys just go your separate ways, you know, what's the next thing that should transpire? And and that's what we're going to see here as we come into the first 10 verses uh, of Exodus chapter 33. We're going to see the next thing that the nation of Israel does. We're going to see the next thing that Moses does. And it's really going to be great encouragement for us because one of the few times that we actually see the nation of Israel in a positive example. Last week, they're all negative examples and the things that they did. You know, now we're going to see a positive example from them of what the next step should be. And we're going to see another great example from Moses of, you know, after you've confronted someone in their sin, which is a difficult thing to do in and of itself, what do you do next? You know, how do you help them as they, you know, have other things that are necessary for them to do? Uh, and so, you know, as we look at this, I want you just to think of your own life when you're in sin and you have that initial response of like, well, what now? What's next? How should I respond after this? And also when you're in that situation where you're confronting someone who's, you know, done some sinful thing, well, well what do I do next with them? What's the next step that would benefit uh, their restoration process with the Lord? And just keep those things in mind because those are the things that we'll learn tonight uh, as we see the example of the Israelites and the example of Moses here in Exodus chapter 33. We'll start here with the next steps the Israelites take uh, in verses 1 through 3. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt." To the land which I have sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." 
So Israel has just committed this horrible sin by worshiping this golden calf that they have made, and they're confronted by Moses, they're judged by God. And now notice what God tells Moses. God tells Moses, even after this sin, even after this horrible sin that it only took them after they said, we'll do everything that you tell us to do in a matter of about 30 days, they're they're worshiping a false god that they have made. And God is saying, even after that, there are still two important things that I am going to give them. Two things that I'm not going to remove from them, even though they deserve it. I'm still going to offer it to them. The first thing is that God is still going to give them the promised land. Notice what God says. Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants I will give it. And so God is saying, hey, You know what? It's time to leave Mount Sinai. We're going to depart for the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land, the land of Canaan. I'm still going to give this to you guys. Even after all that you've done, the sin that you've just committed, I'm not going to remove the promised land from you. So that's the first thing that God says he's still going to give them. The second thing that God says he's still going to give them is his protection. He goes on to say, and I will send my angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So not only is God saying, I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm going to protect you on the way. And more importantly, I'm going to protect you when you get there. Because the promised land is full of all these different people groups who aren't just going to want to give up the land nicely. And so I am going to remove them on your behalf. I'm going to not only give you the promised land, but I'm going to remove those who are there so that you can actually dwell in it. So even though the Israelites have sinned so severely before the Lord, he says, hey, my promise is still with you. My protection is still with you. I haven't removed that from you. But notice verse 3, because this is key. Because God is saying, even though I've still given you my promises and my protection, there is one thing that I'm going to remove. There's one thing that's going to not be with you any longer because of your sin. There's one thing I'm going to deny you, and that is my presence. Notice what God says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, speaking of the promised land, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Notice what God's saying here, you go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, go to the promised land, but something you need to understand, I'm not going with you. I will not be in your midst, lest I consume you. So God's saying, hey, I'm not going to be very close to you. You guys can go. You can travel. I'm going to send my angel before you. I'm going to you know, uh, take care of all the people in the land. I'm going to deal with these things. But me, myself, I'm not going to be close to you in my presence like I once was. And one of the reasons God gives is this, because I might wipe you out. You know, if we got another golden calf instance, you know, you know, I might just wipe you guys out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my distance from you, my presence that you once had before your sin. It's not going to be like that anymore. And notice that God calls them the stiff-necked people. You know, this is the first time that God said it was last chapter, right after they committed this sin, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and God tells Moses what has happened before Moses even sees it. God refers to the nation of Israel for the first time as a stiff-necked people. People. Now, this Hebrew word translated stiff neck means stubborn, hard hearted, difficult, and unwilling to bend your neck in obedience. 
You know, it's a word used, it's a, a term for animals. You know, they would typically either be yoked together or they would have a harness on them. And when animals did not want to obey the master, they didn't want to do what the master was leading them in doing, they would be stiff-necked. They would fight it. They don't, I don't want to go to the right, I want to go to the left. I don't want to stop, I want to keep going. You know, they, they would fight what the master is seeking to have them do. And so they were hard, stiff-necked, disobedient animals. And God's using this illustration to speak of the nation of Israel. That's what you guys are like. You're, you're this stiff-necked group. You're hard-hearted. You're disobedient. I tell you one thing, you try to do the other thing. And this is kind of the description that God gives of the Israelites. And hopefully that's not something you ever want God to, to say about you. You know, there's lots of things that God says about people in the Bible. We're like, oh, I would, I would love him to say that about me. But this is one of those things that you don't really want God to say about you. And sadly, for the nation of Israel, it's going to be said many times. You know, because many times they're going to be in this situation where they're this hard-hearted, difficult, disobedient group who won't obey what God has for them. Now, what God says here is that, you know what, I'm still going to give you the promise. I'm going to give you the, the uh, protection, but I'm not going to give you my presence. And really what this is is a test. And I want you to think back with me because, you know, we just saw something that they do uh, when they make the golden calf, which kind of reveals their own heart. It reveals something uh, about themselves because right when they come to Aaron, they want this golden calf. They say this, come make us gods that shall go before us. So note that they're not just saying, Aaron, we want another God. We want this false God that you make. No, no, no. We want more than that. We want a God that shall go before us. Where? To the promised land. So we want a God that we can now worship that's different than the other God that we just had. But we also want this God to go before us, to get us to the promised land, because that's really the ultimate goal. That's the blessing. That's what we really want. We just want the promised land and we can really care less who takes us there. You know, that's kind of the heart, the mindset of, you know, whether it's the God that, that brought us out of Egypt or this one. But, but notice they even go on to say, you know, that really foolish statement of, hey, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, we make this false God and then we look to the past and say, oh, yeah, this is the God that brought us out of slavery. This is the God who brought the plagues. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is a God who did all this, even though they just made him, you know, before any of that happened. So that foolishness of making that statement, looking back as, the, as though this God did this, but also looking forward as though this golden calf is going to get them to the promised land, as this golden calf is going to protect them on the way. You know, that's what they were doing. They're basically saying, I'm okay with replacing the true God with this golden calf. I'm okay with it. And in the process, you know, what they're saying is God's presence doesn't really matter. You know, all I want is the promise. All I want is the protection. I don't really care about the, pre the presence because, you know what, we'll take this golden calf. His presence will be fine. We'll go with him because we don't really care about the presence of God. We only care about the promise of the promised land and the protection to get there. And they show that in this idolatry and all that they've done. And so that was their heart, replacing the true God and the presence of the true God with this false God. And so now this test is brought to them, which is such an important test because God is basically saying, I'll give you the promised land. I'll give you the protection, but I won't give you the presence. Are you okay with that? Is that something that is fine with you? Is that something that you're okay with? Is that something that you struggle with? And this is the test that we're going to see. Has their heart changed? Is there anything that is different? Are they going to be satisfied with just God's promise 
and just God's protection without his presence? Or are they not going to be satisfied? Lord, we don't want just your promise. We don't want just you know, your protection. We desperately want your presence as well. Please do not remove that from us. We'll see if their heart has changed. But before we do, I think this is a great test for us. A great thing for us to ponder. Would you be satisfied with just God's blessings and not his presence? Would you be satisfied if God said, you know what, I'm going to give you all the promises of Scripture, I'm going to protect you all the time, but my presence will never be with you? Would that be okay with you? Like, hey, if I get the promises and I got the, uh, the, the protection of God, you know, I'm just going to be blessed. You know what, if I don't have your presence, I'm fine. You know, where would you be with that? Would you be like, no way, the presence is too important. Don't take that. Or would you just be fine with the promises and the protection? Let's see how Israel responds in verses 4 through 6. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So the people hear this news that God shares, the news that he's going to give them the promised land, he's going to give them protection, but he's going to remove his presence. And the reason is because they're sinful, they're stiff-necked people. And their response to that is, this is bad news. And this is something that is important here that we see because, you know, it's revealing to us a change of heart. Because if they didn't have a change of heart, they'd be like, man, if you're going to give me the promised land, which I wanted, and your protection to get there, which I want as well, and I don't really care about your presence anyway, then perfect. Let's do it. This is fine. I like this deal. Let's move forward. You know, I'm perfectly content with promise and protection and no presence from you. That's fine. But that's not what we see. We see this change of heart, and we really see it in three different ways in which they respond to what God says. The first way is seen in the fact that they see this as bad news. This isn't good news. You know, good news would be, hey, we don't care about your presence anyway, so what you're giving us, you, you haven't removed the promise, you haven't removed the protection, I thought you would after our sin, and so if their heart hadn't changed, they would see this as good news, but no, they see this as bad news. And the bad news is not just that God's presence is gone. I think the bad news is also that God sees their sin and the bad news is that they are stiff-necked people. Uh, and so both of those things have brought them to this place of, this is bad. This is not a good thing. And it shows a change in their own heart of recognizing lack of presence from God and my own sin because of it is not good. The second thing that reveals their change of hearts is the fact that they mourn. They're, they're expressing sadness and remorse and repentance because of their sin. You know, they're mourning because, hey, God's presence isn't here anymore in the same capacity. And I'm mourning because I've sinned before him, which has impacted negatively my relationship with him. And the third change of heart is seen in the fact that they stripped themselves of their ornaments in obedience to God. You know, this was something that maybe they didn't think of on their own because God specifically tells Moses, hey, tell them they're this stiff-necked people and also tell them, I want them to strip themselves of their ornaments as I think about what I'm going to do to them. 
And they could have been like, well, we're not going to listen to God. But in obedience, they remove these outward ornaments that they use to decorate themselves. And, you know, this would have been their jewelry and, and things of that nature that kind of have that outward display of making you know our flesh look better. And, you know, we, we do that all the time with our fancy clothes and jewelry and different things. And, you know, then the children of Israel weren't ever any different in that regard. But now it's like, hey, there's no time right now to decorate the flesh. This is the time to really search my heart and what I've just done and, and what's going on. And so, you know, we need to get humble here. We need to get, you know, before the Lord in this. And, you know, this is kind of something we see so much connected with mourning in Scripture. That it's not just a feeling. It's not just I'm sorry. But there's literally an outward demonstration that's showing, hey, I truly am in this place of mourning before the Lord. And a lot of times in Scripture, it has to do with the outward adornment. Where people say, you know what, what I normally wear, I'm taking that off and I'm going to put on sackcloth. You know, I'm going to put on ashes over myself. Why? Because I'm demonstrating outwardly the true sincerity of my heart that's mourning. That it's not a time to, you know, decorate the flesh. It's a time to defeat and deny the flesh and really get right and humble before the Lord in, you know, what I've just done. And so we see that through scripture. We see that here. That's something that the Israelites are doing. You know, and this is kind of the, the response that God wants from us. That when we recognize not only the reality of our sin, but what it's done in our relationship with God, that, you know, it's hindered that relationship, that the presence that we've once, you know, been blessed with, that there's a problem now because our sin is there. And if it's not dealt with properly, you know, it's going to have this continual issue within the relationship that we have with the Lord. And so he wants us to be those who mourn that, who repent of that, who respond properly to our sin and the devastation it brings into our relationship with the Lord. And so Israel's response of mourning, it shows, hey, we do care about losing God's presence. We are impacted by the fact that we have sinned. We don't want this. We don't want the impact it's bringing in our relationship with God. We truly want to repent and mourn and change from what we have done before the Lord. We want our relationship to be restored. We want things to be like they were before the golden calf. Lord, we, we prefer that. The presence we had with you, the relationship we had with you before we blew it and building this golden calf, we want to get back there. We want that restoration of things to be what they once were. So once again, I want to have you ask yourself the question, would you be satisfied with God's blessing and not his presence? Would you be satisfied with the promises of God, with the protection of God, if it meant you also didn't get the presence of God. Now, I think as Christians, we all know the right answer. The right answer should be, hey, oh, I shouldn't be satisfied with only the promises and the protection and not the presence. The presence of God is important. As a believer, I should always say, yes, I want that. But, you know, how do we know if that's true for us? How do we know if that's a reality? Yeah, I know the right answer, but is that true in my own life? Is that real in my own life? Would I truly honestly be able to say, yes, the, the presence of God is more important, that if I only had the power and I only had the promises, I only had the protection, that wouldn't be enough for me. Well, you know, I think there are two good tests that we can use to kind of just help see, am I truly satisfied or not with God's presence? One test is what we see here with the nation of Israel. How do you respond to your sin? You see, it's our sin that hinders our relationship with God. 
It's our sin that makes the, the presence of God in, in our life something that is now problematic, something that's now not what it once was. Our sin has that difficult issue of, of causing that problem relationship with the Lord. And so if you truly want God's presence in your life, if you really want to be close to him, you'll see that in a response of quick repentance. You know, when you sin and you realize this has caused a problem in my relationship with God, it's caused a problem in the presence of God in my life, man, I want that presence back. And I know I need to quickly repent, quickly mourn, quickly deal with my sin the way that Scripture tells me to. Confess your sin to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I need to do that quickly because the longer I wait the longer it is for me to get back into that right relationship. The longer I wait, the longer it is for me to have that presence of God back in my life. And so if I truly am someone who values that presence, I'm not going to just continue on in this sinful behavior for a week or a month or two or three and not be concerned about that because I realize the longer it goes, the more the presence is hindered, the more that I'm not getting what I once had before I committed this sin And so we need to recognize how I respond to sin is a great test to determine, do I really value the presence of God? Is it something that is important enough for me to deal with my sin quickly and properly? You know, if there is sin in your life that you would continue to do, if you knew that you would no longer have God's presence, but you would still have all the promises you would still have the protection of God. That life would still be good. So I can continue in this sin, and I'm still having the promises, I'm still having the protection, but I don't have the presence. Is there a sin that you would say, you know what, I would continue in that. If I didn't, you know, you know that would be fine. If I still had the promises and I still had the protection, yeah, the presence of God, oh well, I'd rather have the sin. I'd rather indulge in that. I'd rather continue in that. And I think oftentimes in our life, there are times where we make that choice, where we say, you know what? Yeah, this sin is more important to me than the presence of God, than that right relationship with God. And I prove it because I just continue on in it and I don't deal with it. I don't repent of it. And I just I just indulge in it, showing that God's presence is not as important to me as it should be. The second test you can do to determine if if you're satisfied or not with the presence of God is do you pursue God's presence? You know, on many occasions we see through Scripture, Jesus himself, you know, speaking of the fact that we can come to him anytime we want. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You know, this this open invitation that says, you know what, you want to be in my presence, all you got to do is come. You want time with me, all you got to do is come to me and I'm always available. I'll always give you time. I'm never going to shut the door in your face. I'm never going to not give time to you. You want my presence, it's available. So if we're not spending time with Jesus in his presence, there's only one group they're at fault and that's us. Because Jesus is like, I'm always ready. I'm always available. Whenever you want, I'm here for you. And so when it doesn't happen, it's on our side that it doesn't happen. We're not the ones pursuing the presence of God that he so willingly gives us this great privilege. And so I think a good question to ask ourselves as we determine how satisfied am I? How important is God's presence to me is how often do I pursue it? 
If the invitation is open at any moment, at any time, I can be in the presence of God. I can have fellowship with him. I can come before him. I can seek him in prayer. I can seek him through his word. If I can do that at any time, then the question is, how often do I do that? Because how often I do that is going to reveal how important it truly is. Or on the other side of the coin, how little I do that will truly determine how important it is to my life. I can stand and say to people, oh yeah, God's presence is so important. But if the last time I picked up my Bible or, or I came to the Lord you know, and sought his presence was a week ago, it's not that important. If a month ago, it's really not that important. You know, if I'm doing all these other things in life and, and not taking advantage of one of the greatest privileges I've been given, be honest with yourself. Yeah, God's presence is not that important to me. If it was, I'd make time for it. If it was, it'd be part of my daily life. If you could have all of God's promises and protection and blessings without spending personal time in his presence, would you? Would that be enough? If you could say, you know what, if I, my family was doing great, my health was doing great, life was great, my job was good, my kids are doing well, if everything, the blessings of God were just abundant in my life, would that be enough? Would I say, if I got all that, you know what, I don't need time with God. If I got all that, I don't need quality time. I don't need personal time. I don't need his presence. I just want the blessing. I think sadly, many Christians are at that point. Lord, if you just bless me, I'm cool. I'm fine. I don't need you. I just need what you give me. That's what I'm truly seeking. That's what I really want. And that's kind of the test that God's bringing to the nation of Israel is, do you want me or do you just want what I give? You want my promises. You want my protection or do you want me? What do you value? I think the same is important for us to consider. You know, I know there have been times in my life where I definitely was fine with the blessings of God and not his presence. You know, what it showed is how little I truly understood of the value of what God offers, of the privilege of being in his presence. The fact that I ignored it, the fact that I would sit back and say, you know what? Hey, as long as I'm blessed, Lord, I'm good realize I'm skipping on the greatest blessing that he gives. Time with him, the creator of heaven and earth, says, I will spend time with you. You can be in my presence. How foolish we are not to take advantage of that. So the Israelites respond to their sin and God by saying that, you know what, we're going to mourn. We're stripping ourselves of these outward ornaments. And this is the next important step. They've been confronted by their sin. They've, you know, tried to pass the blame on other people. They didn't want to take responsibility for what they did. Some were willing to, you know, take responsibility, but many weren't. Many just kept indulging in it until God's judgment came upon them. But now this next important step of like, okay, I've been confronted. I've had my initial response to, you know, the sin that's been, you know, revealed to me. And the next important step that needs to happen with ourselves that we see here with the Israelites is one where we see, hey, we need to come to a place of mourning and repentance. We need to see what our sin has done to our relationship with God and mourn it and repent of it. And I think it's both of those. You're recognizing, hey, my sin has caused a problem with me and God. The presence of God, what things were like, they're not the way they are anymore because my sin hasn't been dealt with and it's a barrier between what it was with my relationship with God and now what it is. And until I deal with this, it's not going to be the same. 
Until I get right with the Lord, the presence, the relationship, it's going to still be hindered. And so we first need to recognize, hey, look at what is done to my relationship with God. And the proper response is one to mourn and repent of what I've done. But you know, that's not the end. There's another important step. Another important step that the nation of Israel needs to take. But you know, it's one that for many of them, they might not even have recognized what they need to do. Or for others, they just needed help. Like, okay, maybe I know what I'm supposed to do, but, but I just don't know how I'm going to accomplish it. And this is where we're going to see Moses now be an example. Help them to take this next step and do what is necessary for them. Uh, and so we're going to see now not only the next thing that the Israelites need to do, but also we're going to start to see what Moses does as the person who has you know, confronted the sin. Well, what's next for him? We're going to see that as well in verses 7 through 10. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So we're told here that Moses, he took his tent, his personal tent, and he pitched it outside of the camp, far from the camp. And notice what he called it the tabernacle of meeting. So after Israel's heart is, is turned towards God, they are humbling themselves, they're mourning, they, they repent of their sin. Moses says, I, I know that there's more than this. I'm grateful that you've taken this first step, but there's another step that you guys need to take if you want to get back to where you were, back to the place that you were before you committed this horrible sin. And so they need to take another step beyond just mourning, another step beyond repentance to worship, a step of worshiping God, a step of meeting with him once again, that thing that they haven't done since they were worshiping the golden calf. It's like, well, now we need to, you, you repented, but now you need to get back to worshiping the true God, meeting with him. And so Moses does something to help make that happen. He takes the tent that he lived in. He says, you know what, I'm going to take this tent. I'm going to move it outside the camp. It's going to be the only tent outside the camp, and it's going to be a special tent. I'm going to invite you to come to it. It's going to be the tent that I'm going to call the tabernacle of meeting. Now understand, as Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, what did God tell him? He told him lots of things. But one of the things is, hey, when you get down, it's time to build a tabernacle. And we're going to be looking at all the details of the tabernacle after this. And we're going to see some wonderful things. But the purpose of the tabernacle was a place to meet and worship God. And so it hasn't been built yet. And so Moses is like, I know you guys need this. I know you need this place to meet God, to worship God. And so we haven't built the tabernacle. So guess what? My tent's going to be the tabernacle of meeting. That's going to be a place where you can come meet God, where you can come worship God. I'm going to make it available to the nation. That's going to be what I'm doing. I'm going to be worshiping God. I'm going to be meeting with God. So Moses invites the Israelites to join him in worshiping the Lord meeting with the Lord. And notice God blesses what Moses does. He blesses it clearly by descending on his tent in this 
pillar of cloud. Remember, that's the same pillar that led them from Egypt to Mount Sinai. In the day, you had the pillar of cloud. At night, you had the pillar of fire. This is a very familiar picture to them of the presence of God, which is now descending upon this particular tent outside the camp that is a special place of meeting with God. And he shows his blessing upon what Moses is doing in this time. So Moses understood that Israel's mourning and repentance, well, that was a great first step. But in order to fully reconcile back to the place where they once were, there was more steps to take. They needed to get back to worshiping God. They needed to get back to that place of spending time with him. And the same is true with us. When you and I are confronted with our sin, the first step we should take is a step of repenting, a step of mourning. But then we need to take the second step. We need to once again worship and meet with God. I don't know about you, but in my life, I've definitely seen there have been times where, you know, I've come to a place of repentance, of mourning over my sin. And that's kind of where it stops. There's something within me that basically says, you know what, you're not worthy to worship God. You know, you're not worthy to meet with God after what you just did. And so I don't get back to where I once was. You know, I listen to that lie. Well, well, it's actually a truth. I'm never worthy, but that's regardless of the point because Jesus has paid for my sin. So it gives me access, even though I'm not worthy, which is the wonderful truth that we have. But it kept me. You know, many times I look back of like, well, I've repented. You know, I've mourned, but I'm not willing to worship. I'm not willing to meet with God once again because I don't feel like, you know, I deserve it. And God is saying, well, that's why I give you my grace. Yeah, you don't. But my time, my availability is there for you. And we need to recognize that's what he wants. Yes, you've mourned. Yes, you've repented. But now let's get back to time together. Now let's get back to you worshiping me like you once did before you committed this sin. So now Moses, he knows how important this is. But, but notice, he doesn't just say, you guys, I'm glad you've repented. I'm glad you've mourned. But you know what? You are worshiping a golden calf, and it's time for you to start worshiping God again. You know, it's time for you to get back and meet with God, and so I encourage you to do that. And then just goes back to his tents and has dinner. You know, notice it, that he doesn't just tell them what to do. He's like, guys, you need to worship, and you need to meet with God. And guess what? I am going to be the example of that. Actually, I'm going to be more than an example. I'm going to open up my tent to the tent or tabernacle of meeting. It's going to be a place to meet and worship God, and whoever wants to come, they're available. It's open. It's available to you to do that. And so I'm going to be an example to you of the thing that you need to do. And I'm going to invite you to be a part of it with me. And this is something that is so important. And notice the effect. Moses says, you know, what? I'm not just going to tell you about this. I'm going to be an example to you of what you need to do. And notice the impact that it makes on the nation of Israel. Whenever Moses goes out to his tent, to the tabernacle of meeting, we're told that every man rose and stood at his own tent door and he watched until Moses goes into the tabernacle. And when Moses goes into the tabernacle of God, the pillar descends upon it. And as the people saw the pillar of cloud standing on the tabernacle door, notice what they do. All the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So as they watch Moses, here you are, you're going, you're setting the example in your own tent, you're worshiping God, and they all stand and they see the pillar of cloud, God's presence coming down. And in that moment, as Moses is meeting with the Lord and worshiping God, they follow that example and they as well come to a place 
of worship to God. Moses prompted the people to worship God by his own example of worship. Now last week, we saw Aaron did the exact opposite. He prompted the people to worship a false god. He created the golden calf. And they followed that. They followed that example and it led them to worship a false god. It led them into idolatry. And here Moses comes and says, you know what? I'm going to prompt you to worship the true God. To lead you to worship God the way that you should. Now here's something I think we need to understand. It's sad that Israel is kind of tossed to and fro. It's kind of James speaks about, you know, it's like whoever leads them, they're willing to follow, even though it could be into sin or it could be towards God. You know, they're very fickle. They need someone. They need an example. They need someone who's godly. And they're, they're blessed to have Moses in that role. They surely weren't to have Aaron in that role for those 40 days. But they're, they're, they're willing to follow anything. And I think the reality is, one, we don't want to be like the Israelites in that way. You know, we want to only follow what's true and right. But I think the reality is in the church world, in the world that we live in, there's plenty of people like that. And they're going to look at your life and they're going to follow you, whether you're doing good or bad. Whether your example is godly or whether your example is sinful, they don't care. They're just going to follow the example because that's just the way they are. Kids are that way. Others are that way. They're just going to see what you do and they're going to do what you do. And I think that's a sobering reality for us that we recognize, hey, Aaron was put in that role of being the one who was supposed to oversee the spiritual well-being of the nation of Israel, and he leads them into idolatry. Moses now comes in as an example of leading them in worship of God once again. But I want you to think about your own life and the people that are there, the people who, you know, if you're parents, you definitely have kids, you have family, you have friends, you have co-workers, you know, people that you have influence over, and the example that you set, many people are going to follow. And so the question isn't, you know, we don't want to think, well, people aren't going to follow me if I do good. Well, that's not true. People are just going to follow your example, period. The question is, what kind of example are you setting? Is it a good example that you would want them to follow, or is it a sinful example that you don't? And as parents, we recognize that we often don't do the example that we should, and so we'll say, do as I say, not as I do. But guess what? That doesn't work, because they do as we do, not as we say. And so if we really want them to follow something, then we need to be the example to them of what it is we want them to follow. And we see this with Moses, and we see the opposite with Aaron, but hopefully drives home the point of how important it is for us to be godly examples. But we see something with the Israelites. The next step that we need to take, or with Moses, sorry, after confronting someone in their sin, and really after they've repented, because it's the first thing we want to see from them, is we need to be an example to them of how to worship and meet with God. You know, if you love someone enough and you're mature enough to come to them and approach them about their sin, you better love them enough and be mature enough to be an example of what they need to do next. Not just be like, hey, you need to get your act together. You got sin problems and I'm gone. I don't want anything else to do with you. No, you got issues, yes. And I'm here to help you repent, get right with God, and I'm helping you to be, I'm going to be an example before you of what's next. You need to get back into a regular meeting time with the Lord. You need to get back to worshiping God. And I'm not just going to tell you to do that. I'm going to show you. I'm going to be an example in your life of how that actually works, of what that looks like. And if someone's a young believer, a new believer, you know, it might not be, you need to get back to what you once have done. They might have never done it before. And they're just totally clueless of, well, how do I meet with God? How do I spend time with God? How do I pray? How do I study the Bible? I mean, these are things where you need to be that example 
Take them under your wing. Show them what you're due. Show them how they need to do it as well. And watch how that will benefit and help them take the next step that's necessary. Yes, they've repented. Yes, they've mourned. But they need to get back to that regular time with Jesus. Because if they don't, guess what's going to happen? They're just going to get right back into sin. I mean, that's the thing that prevents and protects. You know, when I'm spending time with the Lord and I'm worshiping the Lord, you know, that's the thing that's necessary for my life if I'm not going to go back to the the sinful things that I just did. If we don't spend time with the Lord and worship the Lord, it's just this, you know, vicious cycle. I sin, I repent. And I don't do anything to prevent my sin, so I sin again and repent and sin again and repent. And I'm not spending time with Jesus. I'm not worshiping Him. I'm not in His Word. I'm not in prayer. All the things that are necessary to help prevent me from going through the cycle over and over and over again. So in these verses, we see the next steps with two different groups. Well, what what should I do if I'm the sinner and someone's confronted me? You know, what are the steps that I should take when that takes place? Well, first, we need to see what our sin has done to our relationship with God and mourn it and repent of it. And second, we need to once again worship and meet with God. Those are two essential things that need to happen as, as we all sin And maybe it's just the Holy Spirit who's calling us out. Maybe it's not an individual person coming like Moses did. Either way, the same reality is true. If the Holy Spirit's convicting me, I still need to come to a place of mourning and repentance, get back to meeting with Jesus, get back to worshiping Him. But you know what? There's the other next step. If we're that person who's mature and loving enough to come and and share with someone, hey, you know what? you got to deal with this. There's a sin in your life, and this is not healthy for you we got to be willing to take the next step with them as well of not just wanting to see repentance, but wanting to be there for them as an example of how to worship and meet with God. And here's the reality. When we respond in these ways, we personally will get right with God. You know, this is the, the, the path for getting right with God. You know, if you avoid dealing with your sin, you're not going to get right with them. There's no, you know, other way of like, well, I don't want to deal with my sin, so how else can I get right with God? Well, you can't. <laughs> That's the only way. You've got to deal with the thing that's keeping you from being right with him. And if you're unwilling to deal with it the way that the Bible says you should, you're not going to get right with him. And so this is something that's essential for if I want to be right with God again, which I hope all of us recognize the value of that in our relationship with God, you're going to have to repent and mourn and come back to spending time with him and worshiping him. But you know what? You can also be someone that helps another brother or sister in Christ get to that place. Because oftentimes we're struggling and we're weak and we're just giving in to temptation and we need someone who's just going to come alongside of us and they're that example in our life and we're looking and we're seeing them be victorious over the things that we're failing in, them overcoming the temptations that we're giving into, them giving time to God when we're neglecting it. And we need to watch that person and be like, man, that person's going to help me get to this place where I can get right with God again. We're going to have that relationship that I once had because they're going to help me see how to properly deal with sin and also how to properly get back into proper fellowship with the Lord. And we can be that person that helps someone do that. You know, if you're in that place of maturity and you're doing well in your walk with the Lord and you're consistent in that and you're seeing someone in sin, hey, there's a perfect chance and opportunity to in love, share with them. You got to change. This is hurting your life. And let me communicate and be an example to you of what you need to do to get right with the Lord and have your relationship with him restored so that you can be blessed in that time that you have with him. So these things, you know, they're practical. We all sin. We all have other people who are sinning. 
These are two things that hopefully you know, we can put into practice, we can do, we can recognize the value of putting our relationship with God and His presence as a priority in our life.